Welcome to Revenue Harvest, a podcast about the fundamentals of sales leadership. Did you know most sales teams don't hit their sales targets and you can't afford to miss yours? This podcast will give you the answer to questions that will help you lead your team better, consistently exceed your sales targets, and make the most of your career. I'm your host, Nigel Green, and the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who can make you a better sales leader. Let's get started. John, welcome. How are you doing? Doing great. Feeling strong. Yeah. Ready for any questions you might ask me. <laughs> well, I tell you what, speaking of questions, uh, I got a text from one of my customers, Dan Starnes, if you're listening, shout out to you, that said, Hey, Nigel, have you read this book? And I get a copy of this. And I said, Huh? No. And, and it, I said, huh, because as you can see, uh, that bookcase is full of books that have, you know, uh, subjects around business, sales, sales leadership, marketing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I try to pride myself in reading everything that comes out. Um, and most of the stuff that comes out, one, I shouldn't have read it. It's just not very good. And then two, it, it never makes the bookshelf. But then when I got your book, I said, huh, never heard of it. And it's a keeper. So it was, uh, nice. it was a rare thing. Yeah. So <laughs> I tell you what, man, I have I've read through this and, you know, I, what I love about it is it's, um, it, it's not the same kind of lexicon garbage of just like all theoretical. You've done a great job of not only making it read kind of in a narrative form, but it is super practical you know, like there, you can just do this stuff and be a better sales leader. So that, that to me says you're someone that, I mean, you, you've made a career out of doing this. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you've done it. What does it say? Five times CRO? Yeah. Five times. Yeah. Yeah. Tell So, well, first of all, I always try to make things simple because I've always said, even to the people that work for me, if, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, then you really don't understand what you're talking about. Right. And even presentations, I hate, I hate PowerPoint because most people don't use PowerPoint. They use what I call power story or power book. I mean, when you look at some of these PowerPoint slides, you're like, wow, you think I'm going to read that? You know, let's get your point across. So usually even then for my salespeople, I always felt like if you can't draw it on the whiteboard and explain what you're doing and paint the picture for your audience so they can follow you, you really don't know what you're talking about. You haven't simplified it enough. So that's been one of the things that I've always tried to do. And that's why in the book, I didn't want to really write a textbook where you read a chapter and I didn't want to use big words that nobody heard of, or I wanted to make it so that it was immediately actionable. So that when people read the book, they kind of figured out where they are in that journey. And then they could say, okay, I know specifically what I need to do. And I can do that tomorrow. I don't have to wonder what I need to do. You talked about the jargon, and one of the first things I want to talk about uh, from the book is this notion of a common vocabulary. And I think that that's it's so important because I think it's just like in sport. Like if you if you haven't played the sport and they start throwing around a midfielder or a hooker or a linebacker or all these things, you don't know what they're talking about. And so the, the reason that's important is if you don't know the language, you can't read the scoreboard. And so tell us, tell me a little bit about like how you stumbled into this truth about a common language. Well, first, I mean, I always think about sports analogies. So if you think about any sport that you might like, 
every team has a playbook and that's the what you have to do. And then there's how you execute it. That's the how. How do how do I do it? That's so there's the knowledge of the the playbook and then there's the skills of how do you do that. And in most sports you can't think if Tom Brady is one of the greatest quarterbacks that ever lived calls a play in the huddle and he has two seconds before people line up and they have to execute the play. He can't have players that are wondering what play he just called. They have to know there can't be any thinking. And a lot of times I go to, I get invited to QBRs. I get invited to different sales meetings, things like that. And I hear people throwing around terminology, like maybe let's use a overused one like champion or coach. So then I'm, I'll stand up and I'll say, hey, you know, I'm new here. Can anybody explain to me, you know, what you mean by the definition of a champion? And then you might give me one definition. So I turn to somebody to my left and I say, hey, well, what's your definition of a champion? I get something different. And then I ask a third person, I get another, a different answer again. So they don't have a common vocabulary. So even though they think they're communicating and they are having a verbal exchange, the picture that you might have in your mind and the picture that I have in my mind may be two completely different pictures because we have different definitions of the same words. So I think you can't really communicate in sales. You can't communicate in sports until you have a, a common vocabulary for a common playbook. So if I'm wanting to move towards common vocabulary, how do, how do I begin moving my team to a common language? Well, I think you got to think about this again, you got to think about the playbook or the sales process. You know, what are the different stages of the sales process? What are the words you use for each different stage? Who are the people that you're going to meet in those different stages? What are you going to do in those different stages? Is it going to be a proof of value? Is it going to be meeting an economic buyer? Is it going to be scoping a project? Is it going to be doing a cost justification? Is it going to be meeting a coach? Is you know what? What are you going to be doing and who are you going to be meeting? And all of those words need to be very, you know, have common definitions, a common terminology. And without that, you know, you're lost because you're just talking past each other. And so if, if, if I can't get my team on the same vocabulary, ultimately it's going to affect my credibility. And in your book, you, you shared an anecdote that said, um, he says, the, your forecast seems to lack a common language. And forecasting is right in line with credibility. If I can't accurately forecast, I, I'll surely be short for my post. Are, are there other implications where uh, this, this lack of common language is ultimately going to affect me in long term with, with credibility with the board, with the CEO? What other areas might yeah. Where, where am I going to get in trouble with this? Well, you're going to get real big trouble when you try to scale really fast. So, you know, I'm associated with some companies right now that are adding like 200 people a quarter to the sales force, right? And if you're trying to scale, that also means that you're not only hiring people and you have to get them on board with a common vocabulary. It also means that you're promoting people. So if I want to take Nigel, who's in... St. Louis, and I want to move him to Los Angeles to, to run a team over there, and I want to promote him. I got to make sure that the team in Los Angeles is using the same vocabulary and the same playbook that Nigel uses in St. Louis. If Nigel's using a different terminology and a different playbook, and now he moves to Los Angeles, what is everybody 
underneath Nigel now got to learn a new playbook and a new a new language. What type of effect do you think negative effect do you think that that's going to have on sales productivity? It's going to be big. So it huge implications when you're trying to scale a sales Salesforce really fast. So I'm trying to scale fast. I get the language down, and and you and I we're we're cut from the same cloth because I love I love sport. I love sports analogies, and I do think that building a business is a lot like sport. Uh, and then in sport, just like in business, there's a scoreboard. I can get all the language right and then fall victim to what you talk about later in the book, which is just being a glorified scorekeeper. What's it mean to, how do I know if I'm being a glorified scorekeeper? Well, what, what you see with, especially with a lot of first time sales managers is they're managing a lot of activity, right? So my analogy, again, if we go back to sports would be, it's like a hockey team that took 48 shots on net. Great. Did any of them go in, you know? So the coach in that case is counting how many shots everybody took or a baseball coach that says Nigel got up four times during the game. He took 12 swings. That's monitoring activity. Those are activity-based KPIs, but do they say why Nigel got a hit or why Nigel didn't get a hit or why Nigel can't put the, the puck in the, in the net? They don't really say that. So I think what's more, it's not bad to keep track of some, activity KPIs. But if you really want to help your people and understand and be a good coach and understand what skills are they lacking, what knowledge are they lacking when they're trying to move from stage or step two of stage two to step three of stage two, you have to monitor deal progression. And you have to understand why is Nigel having a hard time moving from one step of the sales process to the next step of the sales process? Why are those deals not moving overall for my sales team? Maybe I need to train them on something. Maybe I need to give them more knowledge. Maybe they need to develop a new skill. So I think it's more important to monitor deal progression than it is to just be a glorified scorekeeper and say, Nigel took 12 swings, but he didn't get a hit. Who cares? Anybody can do that. I don't need a high paid sales leader to do that. So deal progression is predicated on a defined buying process, which there are a lot of folks that say they have one that need to go back and, and check to make sure that it's actually aligned with the way the customer wants to buy. And right. If you're listening to this, oh, in June of 2021, I promise you, your customers have changed the way they want to buy in the last 12 months. For so sure. your, your process needs to be reevaluated. No doubt. One of my favorite metrics is days in stage. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's All right. still progression though. Why yeah, is it it's, it's, so yeah, it's still it's progression. I'm wondering what are some of your favorite things to look at in deal progression that are important for you? Well, when you know, definitely when you see deals getting stuck, or when I see my whole team is getting stuck at a certain stage, maybe they're getting a hard to having a hard time getting to an economic buyer because I'm really forcing them to get to the economic buyer before they do a POV. So if they if they're getting stuck and they're not getting those meetings with the economic buyer, why is that? So it's always the why, the how come. So is it because they can't develop good champions that have access to the economic buyer? Have they not built a good enough cost justification? Have they not really uncovered the pain? So I look at the things before that lead up to that, that would get them a great champion that would get them access to the economic buyer. So I'm looking at like kind of cause and effect. So if we're not getting to the economic buyer, one thing that's going to inevitably happen is 
so it's forecasting accuracy is one part deal size and whether it closes, right? The, and then the other part is, did it close on time? So if my reps aren't getting to an economic buyer, inevitably they're going to commit that it closes by a date and it's not, and the new close date is going to move. And a lot of reps, you talk about keeping score, a lot of managers don't track at the rep level how many times they told me it would close by a date and it moved. Do you, do you track that? And what do you see being beneficial about folks that need to track that? No, well, I think you need to track that. I call those slip deals. So if Nigel puts a slip deal, and what I mean by that is, let's say Nigel's quote is three hundred thousand, and he and he forecast a hundred thousand dollar deal that was going to close at the end of this quarter. What a lot, what you're saying is a lot of managers don't hold Nigel accountable and say, okay, next quarter you have your three hundred thousand dollar quota, and you have the hundred thousand dollar slip deal. So I'm expecting a minimum of four hundred thousand from you. What a lot of managers allow is Nigel to show up the next quarter for the forecast, and then he shows he's going to do three hundred thousand again. Wait a minute. What does that mean? You just slipped that deal that you forecast and committed to for a hundred thousand last quarter. You really should be doing four hundred thousand this quarter, not really two hundred thousand plus the slip deal. And really, in reality, what you see is that a lot of reps are fooling themselves. And during these forecast reviews, they're fooling the managers because the managers aren't asking really detailed qualification questions. So those deals slip. It's a $100,000 deal in Q1. In Q2, it turns out to be a $75,000 deal. And in Q3, it winds up you know, going away. You never see it. So if you don't keep track of these slip deals, you'll see that reps just keep putting the same deals on the forecast quarter after quarter. So th- there's a lot of truth to that, to the slip deal. And it doesn't you know, there's not a lot of, there's not quota carry as a result of the slip deal, but then, you know, if I'm a leader, how do I believe your future forecast knowing that, well, you've got a history of slip deals? Well, I mean, if you really want to do it right, you know, I, in the book, I talk about my son when he was younger and I talk about a story called peas and carrots. So Right now, he, he eats me out of house and home. But <laughs> but when he was younger, he'd basically see his peas, his carrots, his potatoes, and his meat. And he'd gobble down the meat and the potatoes. And then he'd spread the peas and carrots around the plate. And he'd say, I'm done. And I go, you're done? And he goes, yeah, I'm done. And I said, it doesn't look like you're done. And he goes, no, dad, I'm done. So then I would take my knife and fork and reach over to his plate and take the peas and carrots off the edge of the plate and put it in a big pile in the middle. And I go, now, does it look like you're done? And he goes, no, it doesn't look like I'm done. And I said, I, I didn't think you were done. And the reason I say that is what you really want to do as a sales leader is you want to qualify these deals really hard to get them off the plate. So that $100,000 deal that you really don't think is going to close, you got to qualify that off the forecast and make Nigel go out and find another real $100,000 deal that absolutely will close. If you allow Nigel to continue to keep that $100,000 deal on the forecast quarter after quarter, and then it goes away, you know, you've lost, you've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of, you know, three quarters. So you got to almost, you got to qualify deals off the plate, off the forecast. They're not done yet. 
let's let's shift gears for a second. You said you're involved with some companies that are going to hire 200 reps in the next quarter. Is that right? Yeah. I don't see a model in which you can be successful at hiring at that rate without some type of defined hiring process. Right. Right. What's a good hiring process look like for you? Well, a good hiring process for me, if you first starts with the sales process, right? So think about, again, if we think about sports, that's the, what these people need to do, right? Is the sales, is the sales process or the, or the playbook. So then what you have to do is your, your job profile of who you're looking for should naturally fall out of your sales process. So if in stage two of the sales process, as an example, it says that they need these types of skills to execute and this type of knowledge, then why would that not fall directly into your job profile and say that I want to ask people about these skills and this type of knowledge and see what they have. And then what I like to do at the end of it is not only look for skills, knowledge, and characteristics, which I think are the most important in hiring people, by the way, and we can come back to that. But then what I like to know is when people come to me and they say, okay, John, we want to hire Nigel. I go, great. What's the risk? They go, well, what do you mean? And I go, let's go back to the job profile and show me what knowledge and what skills he's lacking. And based upon the knowledge and skills that he's lacking, that's the risk that we're taking in hiring him. So now I want to know how are you going to cover those risks? Do we have a training program that can help Nigel gain that knowledge? Do you you as the manager have the skill set that Nigel's lacking where you can help develop Nigel so he can gain those skills? And the more risks you take with his more lacking knowledge, lacking skills, you're taking a big risk. And that's why a lot of times you see people get hired into companies and then they fail. They're either hired into the wrong company at that stage of its growth or they're put into the wrong position. And as far as position, here's the way that I think about it. If we go back to sports, Tom Brady has excellent knowledge of the game of football. So some, But if we take Tom Brady and we put him in any other position on the field tomorrow on the first play, we'll all say, what's he doing in that position? He'd fail. Why? It's not the knowledge. It's going to be the skill set. He doesn't have the skill set to execute the plays from that position. So that's no different than hiring somebody where a lot of times I hear, oh, sales is sales. Any sales guy that can sell could sell. I'm not so sure because now you take that person, put in in a company that's at a different stage than they're used to and put them into an account that they don't have the skill set, they're going to fail. So a couple of things come to mind that I wanted to kind of pick it a little bit further from that. Sure. What tools are available for the sales leader to uncover knowledge and skill gaps? Just, I mean, if you, if you, uh, if you draw that out of your, your, your uh, playbook and then put that in a, in a profile and then write open-ended questions for, to, that align to each one of those. And then you ask questions, but you really try to qualify whether or not they have that knowledge and, and have that skill. That's, that's all you really have at the end of the day. Do you, I don't think it's, there's nothing magical about it. Do you use any type of uh, behavioral assessments or personality tools? Well, yeah, I use, uh, used to always use Profiles International and Profiles International has a test 
or an assessment, let's call it, it's an assessment. It's not a personality test. It's an assessment test. And it's called the Profiles XT. What does the Profiles XT actually do? This is really important that people understand it's not a personality test. What it does is you take, let's say, your top 10 performers at the company, at this stage of your company. And what you do is you have them all take Profiles XT. And what you're going to see is the characteristics of those people at this stage of your company. Now, when the candidate comes in, they go through the natural interview process. And if you like them, typically just before they'd come to see me, I'd have them take the Profiles XT. It takes about an hour. You have them sit down in a cubicle and take the test or take the assessment. Then what happens is it compares that candidate to your top 10 people and the characteristics of those people. If they're a direct match, they'd be stupid not to take the job because those are your top 10 people and they're excelling at what they do and they're making a lot of money. If they are not a match to those people, then it doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means at this point in time, at this stage of your company, as you're scaling it, they're not a good fit right now. And they'd almost be stupid to try to take the job. And you'd almost be, you know, not of right mind to, to hire them because yeah. you know that they're lacking a lot of the characteristics that make the top performers. I do the same thing. I use the predictive index and it has very similar capabilities. I, I, I love this notion of taking your sales process and treating the interview process uh, in, a, in a similar kind of cadence. I'm wondering, uh, you got me thinking, do you then, if if a part of the playbook is prospecting, right, or, or uncovering new opportunities, do you try to tease that out early in the interview process, their yeah. ability to, to do that? And then later, obviously, all good salespeople close. Are you trying to see their capabilities to to close and then obviously to win or recover and in, like, is there any type of recovery or salvage testing capability in the interview process with you? What do you mean by salvage? I don't know what you mean. Like, by I mean, look, sometimes the deal goes sideways. Yeah. And oh, how, how they might salvage the deal. Yeah. How they might salvage a deal. Do they salvage the interview or, yeah. or salvage the interview right. process? Yeah. Well, there's a couple things that come to mind. So, um, a lot of times when I'm in an interview with people, remember people are uh, salespeople are supposed to be perceptive. They're supposed to be using their intuition. They're supposed to be listening. They're supposed to be here in the moment. And halfway through, I might say, hey, Nigel, how do you think you're doing right now? Now, there's no real right answer, but I really want to hear the thoughts that come out of Nigel as far as how, how his intuition is working. You know, and I, I want to see if he see, saw anything in me, if he derived anything from what I said or the way in which I asked the questions or his answers, I want to know how he thinks he's doing as if we had, you know, a fly on the wall and they were watching how Nigel did. I want to, I want to know that. Um, as far as um, salvaging the deal, I don't, I don't know what I'm really doing is asking them to walk me through deals and you can tell whether or not they have the experience in, in doing the deals when you ask them, tell me the def def definition of a champion and the difference between a coach and a champion. And how do you handle an economic buyer meeting? And 
how do you justify a higher price point for your product? And how do you frame a POV? And I mean, you really can't get away from answering those those questions. They're very specific. There's no blah, blah, blah about it. I mean, you either have experience doing that or you don't. So um, it's almost like as if we like got into Bill Belichick's office for the New England Patriots. I mean, how does he take some people like Edelman, who was a quarterback in college, and then put him in as a slot receiver? Because if I think if we snuck into his office, whether we were looking at his, you know, paper files or files on his computer, he would have a defined profile for what he wants that slot receiver, the skill set and the knowledge that they have to have and the characteristics, right? And that's kind of what we're look, trying to do when we're interviewing people for sales. Are you interviewing them for a small, medium business territory? Are you interviewing them for mid-sized territory? Are you interviewing them for a major account? Are you interviewing them for a worldwide financial conglomerate? You know, there's different skill sets that those people need in order to be successful in those sales processes. One of those skill sets is something that I believe is um, developed. I don't know that it's inherent, but I think it can be developed in anyone. And you and I have strong uh, beliefs around this. You call it recruiting character. I, I hire on three C's, character, chemistry, and competence. They're all important. I tell uh, people, they spend way too much emphasis on competence and not enough on character and chemistry. So chemistry is, is how well we're going to work together. I think that you can be really competent, but if, if we're just not going to get along, if I don't generally enjoy being around you, I still think it's a mistake for me to hire you. Right, right. The, the thing that gets just ignored is character. I don't know of a lot of hiring managers that, get this right. And character to me is, do you live by some set of principles? It doesn't have to be mine. It needs to be close to mine, but you need to be able to articulate to me a way in which you live a principled life. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for, first I'll go to, um, well, let's back up. When I first interview people, I'm, I might look at the resume, but the resume doesn't really tell me anything. It's almost like a brochure for or a website when you're going to go to a vacation resort, right? Pictures look great. You know, description is amazing. And then you get there and you're like, wow, we were, we were fooled, right? Because there's no third-party certification of it, right? And the resume is no different. There's no third-party certification of a resume. And if you look at a resume, what's really in a resume? It's a bunch of jobs that somebody had and how long they stayed at the jobs. But does it say anything about their characteristics, to your point? No, it doesn't say anything. Does it say anything really about their knowledge? A little bit because of some of the products that they sold. Does it say anything about their skill set, their ability to get to an economic buyer, any of that? No, it doesn't say anything like that. So if you're going to start an interview, I always start right at the characteristics. So if we believe, for me, that knowledge of the game is important and the skill of the game, so the, what you have to do and how you have to do it is really important, then intelligence, somebody that's really smart, is going to be able to pick up the knowledge of the game, right? So if I'm going to try to teach them and I know they're super smart, they're going to pick it up. 
if somebody has what I call a PhD, persistence, heart, and desire, then they're going to be able to pick up the skills. Why? Because a skill is something that's performed many times over and over and over. If I want to be a great dart thrower, I decide I'm going to do that or be great at golf. I also have to decide that I'm going to hit a thousand balls a day or throw the dart a thousand times a day. And if I don't have that type of character, that persistence, heart and desire, I'm never going to be great at it. Right. And that's the same thing with skills in, in sales. So I'll move from there and now maybe touch on some of the things that you talked about. That's when I want to know about integrity. You know, that's when I want to know about, you know, other types of things that are more in line with the way in which I believe I want to run my business. So character is to me, it's, it's everything. And, and let's, let's back up even more. If you're in fast growing companies like I've been in almost, almost every year, definitely every two years. And sometimes even every quarter, I remember going to CEOs and going, we're a different company. The products change, competitions change, customers have gotten smarter, messaging has to change. So everything is changing. So and if you're not capable of being really intelligent and picking up the new knowledge and you're not really driven to gain the new skills, I've seen people where all this, I used to think that they were really good. And then I look at them one year and I go, the guy's a dinosaur. He has not changed. He was great two years ago. It's terrible now. The game has changed and he hasn't changed. There is, there's a, a school of thought that says when, when you're hiring a, a sales leader, VP, director, level up, one question that you, you need to ask is, if we hire you today, who's coming with you? And I don't, I don't know where I land on the validity of that question. And there, I, I see that there's some, some merit to what does it say about you as a leader that people would come in and work for you. But if you take into account everything that we've just discussed about previous experience, stages of company, it begs the question, well, how do you know without a day in the job that the people that were successful for you at a company, maybe two posts ago, are even going to map to this? So I almost, I'm ready for a candidate in a leadership role to tell me, Nigel, what the hell does that even matter? Right, right. No, it's like we, we talked about before. Football isn't football. Sales isn't sales. Hockey's not hockey. You know, is the person capable of being at that company at that stage of its growth, number one? And is the person capable of actually playing that position that you're going to put them in? So absolutely. And, you know, I, I've been, I've changed companies where I was, I could go back and grab some people, you know, from the former company. And there were other times where I signed something <laughs> where legally I absolutely couldn't. So I had to go find a whole new team, you know? And that's where you really start to, you know, boil down like, what is it that I'm really looking for? Not just some old friends that I made, but what type of athletes do I really need that can truly execute this playbook? And that's when you, that's when the rubber hits the road, when you got to really, you know, dig in deep and figure out who you're hiring. Because at the end of the day, who you hire makes the team. You know, if you hire, I always say that if you hire B's and C's and you do everything else perfect, you're not going to the championship. But if you hire A's and you do everything else average, 
the A's are going to help you get to the championship. And I'm not, you know, promoting doing things on on average, but I'm trying to make the difference between hiring B's and C's and hiring A's. So let's talk about. There are probably some some there's some executives and some board members listening to this wondering if they've made the right hire if they've got an A player at the leadership I'm sure. level. I'm sure. And, and so, if I'm on the fence about whether or not my VP of sales or my head of growth or my CRO has what it takes, what are, what are some questions that come to mind for you to help help this executive make some sense of that? Well, first of all, how intimate are they with the forecast, right? So if you're not intimate with the forecast, it means you're not intimate with the deals that you're going on, you know, with the reps. And it also means that you're not intimate with being able to qualify through the reps on the accounts that you haven't been in. That's that's a big one, right? So how how accurate is that forecast? Meaning how intimate, which tells me really how intimate you are with the people and with the accounts. The second thing would be, how often are you on sales calls, right? Are you flying a desk? Or are you out there with the salespeople to understand where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? What do I have to train them on? What are the issues? What do we have to change in messaging? What type of product enhancements might we need? And then how many of those reps want to take that person on sales calls? So I've seen it where the reps don't want to take the manager on sales calls. They're calling me and other people to take them on sales calls. And I'm thinking, oh, I got, I have a problem. The other one you see is a lot of times the, the leaders, especially when you might have like, you know, 20 leaders, you'll see one person that's always trying to sell you on the, the people that they need to recruit. So they're calling you saying, hey, John, I just want to let you know, you're going to go see this guy, Nigel. He's really a good guy. And I always say, I don't want to know anything about Nigel before I recruit him, right? But it's an indicator that he's trying to sell because he's trying to get somebody into the door that, you know, because he can't recruit. And sometimes that's one of the biggest indicators is that the people in those territories, let's say Nigel's in Kentucky and and Nigel's having a hard time recruiting. Maybe the outside world knows more about Nigel than I do, right? Maybe they're looking at him and saying, Where am I going to go with him? Because any great recruit is looking at their manager and saying, where's this person going to go? Because I need to work for somebody that's not only going to teach me new skills and give me new knowledge, but it's going to get promoted so I can go with them. If I think that this person's not going anywhere, why am I joining that company? Not really working for the company. I'm working for the leader, right? That's why you always hear that people don't leave companies. They leave managers. If I'm if I'm listening to this and I'm an executive and I'm everything you're saying has got me nodding my head, how do I begin to take action on a, a failed sales leader? Well, I think first of all, you got to go mano a mano. You have to sit the person down, put them in the hot seat, and say, I think we got a problem. You know, sometimes and when I do that with people, look, everybody's got their own style that they're comfortable with. But if I was going to sit down with you and I thought I might have a problem with Nigel, I'd sit you down in the room. And you got to make sure that I have plenty of time. This can't be a five-minute discussion. It could be because maybe Nigel takes well to it, but it could be an hour and a half discussion also. I don't know how Nigel's going to do. But I'm the way that I like to open it up is I like to say, Nigel, when you're not around, what's the book on Nigel? If we open up that book right now, what do people say about Nigel? And it's very telling if the person can't really describe 
what other people actually think of them and their actions, you might have a big self-awareness problem, right? So that's a very telling situation. And then you get to walk through, you know, what they are doing right, what they are doing wrong, and where you need to see them perform better. Or, you know, the next discussion, it's going to be even a tougher conversation. But I think you got to let people know that you're there to help them, not to just berate them, right? You're there to help them and help them be successful. And if there's something that Nigel's not doing right now that I might be able to help them with, I'll say, look, I'm willing to help you. So you got to ask, I'll be there for you because I want to see you be successful if I really believe that, right? And then what I have found, Nigel, is in some cases where I had problems like that, I also say to the person, listen, after I ask them about the book, you know, I'll say, look, here's where you are. And other people see you having the capability to be much higher. I do, and I know other people do. That's the book on you. But you haven't moved yet. The company's moved. Other salespeople have grown. Other managers have grown. But you've stayed steady. And you need to take a step up. And if you can't take that step up, then we have a different problem. But if I, I'll help you get to that next step up. Now, when people do respond and you can help them get to that next step up after that difficult conversation, wow, you're not losing that person because now you saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves and you helped them get to a new level they didn't think they could get to. They're not leaving you. They're not going anywhere. Let's talk about stepping up. And one thing that happened to me early in my career, and you've certainly seen it. Uh, and there's this, there is the sales leader that doesn't have any issue hitting numbers. Okay. Uh, we, we just talked about an example of a likely a failed sales leader. That's not, you know, they're not intimate with the forecast. They don't know the book of them. And so they, they don't even see that they keep missing these commitments. There is the other type of failing sales leader that will hit their number but they don't do what's required to be in the C-suite, which is have a good relationship with operations, product, marketing, and, and their peers in the C-suite. How do you begin to coach that leader that, that doesn't yet understand that it's not enough to just hit the revenue numbers, but to do it in a way where you're, you can also be a good teammate? I usually do something with everybody. I stand up in front of everyone and say, look, this is a growth company. And the only way you're going to get promoted, now sometimes I'll even go over the numbers. Here's where we are, how many reps we have, how many managers we have. And next year, here's how many new open leadership positions there, there are going to be. Now, the only way you're going to get promoted is if you can prove to me that you've been able to recruit people, train them and develop them so they can take your place. So that really holds people accountable. So sometimes you'll get, you'll get Joe and Sam, and Joe has made his numbers, to your point, all the time, right? And Sam has made his numbers kind of, but not he hasn't blown them out like Joe. But he does a much better job of developing people. So then you promote Sam and you get a call from Joe. Joe's like, wait a second, my numbers are better than Sam's. How come you didn't promote me? Well, I have one question for you. Who could take your spot? Ah, uh, okay. End the conversation. You only have to do that once or twice in your organization. And it goes through the whole organization where they start to understand that it's not about them. 
It's about everybody else. And the way that they get promoted in this organization is by helping other people be successful, whether that's on their team or, or outside their team. And if they don't want to do those types of things, you're just not going to promote them. And usually when I've seen it in, in the case that when you were describing it, usually, Nigel, when I see that, it's usually more of what I call artist. It's a guy that actually sold a lot when they were reps and they did a lot of things that you and I might have to have thought about like three different steps. They could do it in one step without thinking about it. Just like a great athlete who can execute certain skills almost artistically, right? That other people have to think about how they do that. And those guys typically when they're running a team, even though they're making the numbers, I'll almost guarantee you there's not equal distribution amongst the team members. It's probably one or two guys that they go on sales calls with. The artist goes on sales calls with those reps because they like them and they help them get big deals and they make the, the number for the team. But there's three or four people that are suffering and there's not equal distribution because the artist leader doesn't really want to spend time with everybody. They're yeah. more mercurial than they are all about the other people. They're not selfless. They're still about themselves and posting numbers versus developing people. Well, so yeah, like when I think about some feedback I had early in my career, mercurial is probably a, a good word to describe it. I would be uh, dogged determined that we were going to hit the sales number, but it might create serious problems for the operations team. And me and the COO would go, you know, we butt heads all the time or, yeah. you know, we, I had a clinical team and, and my clinical leadership peers would be like, Nigel doesn't listen. He's bullheaded. He's yeah. intolerant. <laughs> and so like Nigel left this wake of destruction as yeah. he was hitting all the revenue numbers that everybody else in the company was like, this guy just doesn't listen. Right. Right. And I think that's, that can be the end of the ladder for a lot of people. Right. Right. They're developing everybody on the sales team. They got a clear replacement for them, but there's nowhere for them to go because they can't get along with anybody else. Right, right. Because it's all about them. It's not really all about, at that point in time, it was more all about you. You were trying to prove yourself and there's nothing wrong with that, but then you probably matured and experience and maturity, you know, made you change, change your ways. And you started to figure out that, hey, it's not about me all the time. It's about these people that work for me. So I a lot of times when people tell me that they or ask me and they say, hey, you know, I want to get promoted from from sales rep to leader. I say, really? OK, can I ask you a question? Do you have any kids? And they'll say, yeah, you know, I got two or three kids. And I go, great. Why do you want five more? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, let's think about it. When you were single. It was all about you. You know, when you got up, when you went to bed, what you ate, what activities you did, what you did on the weekend, it was all about you. And the same thing when you were a sales rep, it's all about you. When you get up, when you go to bed, all your activities, it's not about anybody else. And then you had kids and you got married and you had kids. Now, who's it about? Not about you at all. It's all about those kids. You know, when do they get up? When do they go to bed? When do they go to school? What are their activities? All those types of things. And your focus isn't on you anymore. Because you have to be selfless and you have to, ha and then if you have two or three kids, you know that all those kids are completely different, different strengths, weaknesses, desires, fears, insecurities, goals, and you have to help them be successful. It's all about them, not you. 
And I usually use that analogy to drive a point home that if you think that you're just going to be this selfish leader that was a selfish salesperson and you're going to be now be a leader and you're going to be selfish, you're not going anywhere. That's it, John. I love it. If you want to get in leadership, get ready for kids. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many times that I've come home and my wife and say, hey, how'd your day go? I say it was total adult daycare, complete adult daycare. But that's what the job's about sometimes because it's about people development and people have issues and you got to help them through some of those issues. And the more you are intimate with your people and you don't look at them as cookie cutter, you're going to get into some of their issues. Because if you really want to know what drives them, you have to you have to spend time with them. I call it windshield time, whether you're driving in a car, you're on a train, a plane, you're at a hotel, you can have a beer or a dinner, but you got to get to know your people. You want to, just like your kids, you want to understand their strengths and weaknesses and fears and securities, doubts, goals, because then you can help motivate them. And you also know what they're scared of. So. Yeah. And I think the kids analogy is great because any parent would tell you, uh, you did a good job as a parent. If your kids leave the house, they (laughs) grow up and leave. At what age? 40 or 50. <laughs> well, that's the point. At some point they got to go. Yeah. And, uh, there are a lot of, a lot of managers that try to keep kids in the house because they're, yeah. they're really good kids. They're top performers. And it's like, right. nope. your job is to get them out of the house. They right. got to go. Right. Well, that's where I call I call it. They start to confuse the, the mission with the men or the mission with the people. Right. So they start to get too comfortable with their people. And then now they don't see, some of the issues that those people have and they're, they make the, it's a little too comfortable and they actually doing those people a disservice because they're not driving them into areas where they can grow. Yep. John, it's been a pleasure. Uh, where can folks go to learn more from you or get a copy of the book? Where do you want to point people to come? They can go to amazon.com and get a copy. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. to Amazon. Okay. Anything else? Um, they need to know about you or any, any last closing nuggets. Of else. It's not about me, Nigel. It's not about me. Well, I had a heck of a time with you. Thank you so much. That was great, Nigel. Thanks a lot. Music from this episode is from my good buddy, Justin Adams. You can listen to Justin's music and Spotify or Apple music. Thank you, Justin, for the music. And thank you for checking out another episode of the Revenue Harvest.